0: all right everyone let us get started it's 1230 time to get going back in the book of numbers and as we're getting started today uh, I want to remind you again we record every week audio and video take a card before you leave right here that has the links to the website to our YouTube account social media um, and you can catch up if you miss a week, because we all have to miss weeks sometimes. So the other thing that you need to know about too is I mentioned it last week, our, our full course to Know and Be Known Forming a Thoughtful Christian Sexual Ethic. This is now available free on our YouTube channel. All the sessions, there's 11 sessions each for about, which is about 30 minutes long. And we cover everything having to do with human sexuality and God's purpose, everything. Oh, you want to see... You want to see some people blush? Do this study in your small group. We hit Song of Solomon and we show visuals. That's all I'll say. So it's a great study. I've done it even in Baptist churches. So it's Baptist approved, right? So uh, that means that any church can do it uh, with, in terms of squeamishness. No, but it's a, it's a great study and we really do give people a foundation. It, the tagline is we don't teach you what to think about sex. We teach you how to think about sex because that's what's needed in this culture. There's a lot of people telling people what to think, not a lot of people telling people how to think. The other thing, this week now, because of continued support, people supporting the ministry of Disciple Dojo, we've been able to now upload our entire Revelation of Guided Tour of the Apocalypse DVD course. So this is the next uh, course that we've uploaded for free on our YouTube channel, and you just go to YouTube and all the videos, they're right there. Each one's 20 to 40 minutes long, goes chapter by chapter through the book of revelation. We talk about what it said, what it meant to them, and only then after we do that do we talk about what it means to us today. Usually people do it in the opposite order and they just want to know what does the bible say about, you know, end times, solar eclipses, the middle east, <laughs> the beast, mark of the beast, the rapture, all that kind of stuff that they they st- and so they come to revelation trying to find things that they've already decided they want to know about. What we do is we say Scratch all that. What did the first audience of this book get from it? Because if it only meant, if, if Revelation was only about stuff that's going to happen in the 2000s AD, then that means for 2,000 years of church history, it's been a pretty worthless book. So what we do instead is we go, no, what's the enduring message of the book of Revelation? What has made this the most misunderstood book in the history of the Bible? And what's its message? And the thing about this study that I love so much is people that do it, They start very nervous, they don't like Revelation, they're scared of it, or they come from a church that really emphasizes it, like to an unhealthy degree, and they have their minds and their views completely transformed when they take the course. And they come away from it saying, this is now Revelation, I get it, and I see why it's the book that ironically has been the most encouraging book in the history of the church. Revelation was the book that has encouraged more Christians than probably any other book except maybe the Psalms. Uh, and so I want people to know the message of Revelation, so that's why this course is available free. I still have some DVD copies if you're old school and you want like something that you can hold, but it's free to stream on YouTube. There's a 50-page workbook you download uh, for to know and be known. You download it as a PDF, it's free. For Revelation, there's a whole workbook that contains an entire translation of the book that I put together with all of the Old Testament references in bold and put out to the side so you can see, and which preserves the literary structure of the book, which gets lost in some modern translations due to paragraphing and typesetting. So it's a a full course. It's like you want to go to seminary and take a course on Revelation, but you can't? Well, here you go. Um, it's, It's like 15, 16 weeks that you could do. Or you could do them two at a time and be done in half that. But the point is that those are examples of the Disciple Dojo resource courses that are only possible for us to put out if people support the ministry. And we're a nonprofit 501 501c3, so all donations are tax deductible. And uh, we could really use your support as we continue to grow our online library. And that includes this, because when people log into or subscribe to the YouTube channel, then this study streams every week as well. So it's all part of one big teaching umbrella. And, um, and th- the other aspect, and I'll just mention this and then we'll jump into this chapter, but this past, my voice is creaky for a reason, this past weekend uh, I took 12 of uh, my refugee jiu-jitsu students to compete in their first tournament uh, down in Indian Trail so they did fantastic they held their own with a very very high quality Jiu Jitsu Academy students in this area the kids who train six days a week and their parents take them and they're given. you know our kids they did alright they didn't get torched uh, which was great because we only train once a week and all ages together so these were kids our youngest was eight our oldest was nineteen and they all did great. I competed, I did pretty bad, but uh, still got out there. It was my first time in the advanced division. Um, no black eye this time, that's only in training usually. But uh, then yesterday, we were able to take seven of the older ones, teenagers, to Carowinds for the first time and uh, let them ride the rides and the roller coasters and everything, so all of that was through. And we had, you know, kid, these kids are from Afghanistan, Pakistan, Iraq, uh, Burma, Nepal, Ethiopia, Um, Cameroon, Mexico, Honduras, like we've got kids from all over the world, and their parents are coming here, and they're working hard, and they're providing, but they, you know, stuff like that's expensive. So because of the support for this ministry, that kind of stuff also happens as well. So it's teaching in word and in deed uh, as part of Disciple Dojo. So if you want to be on board, if you want to be a monthly supporter, which is what we really need, then talk to me, because I would love to show you, it's as easy as clicking a mouse uh, and having money so <laughs> let's get to chapter 24 this is the final the third of uh, Billam's oracles now Billam was the prophet uh, the pagan prophet for, from the ancient Near East from somewhere in what would be today modern Syria and he comes and he's been asked to curse Israel by this foreign king Balak who sees Israel as a threat and who Israel was going to leave alone. But Balak uh, said, no, you can't pass through our territory. And other kings said, you can't pass through our territory. And they came out to fight against Israel. And because Israel is right now, God is, is in their midst. He's allowed this new rising generation. Remember, the old generation is dying out. The rebellious generation is almost dead. There are only a few left. This is the new generation that are rising up. And so God is bringing them in their own exodus, so to speak, out of the wilderness through the waters. The waters are going to split when they go into the promised land. A lot of people forget that one. God split the waters twice. Um, These are going to be the waters of the Jordan and they're going to enter into the land that he's promised, but they're still on the fringes of the Holy Land. They're still in modern day Jordan. Um, and they're looking over the, the, the Jordan Valley across towards what would be Jericho, and then eventually on up would be Jerusalem. That's where they're camped. They're in these, the area of the Moabites, the Edomites. Um, there's some other nomadic tribes that get mentioned in this chapter, because, again, it's like a loose confederation. There's not strict borders. State borders are a modern phenomenon. These were just kind of your borders were where you were tough enough to defend. That was your borders. So they're, they're on the edge of the land, and, and Bilaam has said, I can only say what God says. And Balak has tried to entice him two times already, and this second time it didn't work, so this third time he's taken him at the end to another place on top of Beor, and this, this mountain or this mountainous region, this is where Moses is going to die at the end of Deuteronomy. This is where Israel's going to stay. Israel's not going anywhere. They're going to stay here until they're ready to march on Jericho in the book of Joshua. But right now, he takes him to this place, so he's overlooking, and he says, uh, "Bilam says, Fine, build me seven altars, you know, all of the sacrifices, rivers of, of or, or, or whole flocks of uh, cattle and sheep, and all of this stuff that are being offered to try to remember, Balak's model is the model of gods in the ancient Near East. If you give the gods enough of value, that will move them to do what you want. If your seed offering of faith is big enough, the gods will grant your blessing. Do you see how idolatry still creeps into the church today? So Balaam is like, or Balak is like, you know, altars, gifts, I'll give anything you want. Now later, the prophet Micah is going to have a little conversation mentioning this incident. And he's going to say, what should I, mockingly, or not mockingly, but uh, ironically using israel as a cypher saying "Well, what should i bring to the lord for my offering does he want rivers of oil does he want entire flocks does he want my firstborn and micah will say no what does the lord require of you O man but to do justice love mercy and walk humbly with your god so this that is that's revelatory in old testament times and especially in pre-israelite old testament times which is where we are so there he's that's that the scene is set he's overlooking he's on the high places of of Baal this is Baal's territory and now uh, verse 24 chapter 24 verse 1 now Balaam saw that uh, that it pleased Yahweh to bless Israel so he did not resort to sorcery as at other times but turned his face towards the wasteland Or towards the desert. So this time he doesn't resort to any kind of divination, divination, sorcery. These terms are terms for things like uh, split. Once you've sacrificed the animal, take its entrails and examine them, and try to see if there you can see some omens in there, or looking using magical implements. To it's like you know when you talk about reading the stars or reading tea leaves or you know flipping coins or a magic eight ball or whatever. It's it's all that kind of stuff. He doesn't resort to any of that that's his stock and trade that's what he's known for he doesn't this time because he realizes this isn't going to change anything god has already decreed he's going to bless these people he's going to bless them he cannot curse them so he turns towards the wasteland. now this is where commentators are split you go to commentaries you'll find that some commentators are split and they think that Bill is the example of the the right in this incident doing the right thing so he turns towards the desert he turns away from all of 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 Israel's encampments, all of Balak's land and everything, and just turns towards the wilderness, like, like I'm gonna just like closing my eyes so I can just speak God's word. The ones who think Bilam is a false prophet, an evil prophet, say he turns towards the wasteland, and it's the word wasteland, not the word desert, because that is where it was believed in the ancient Near East that the powers of the demonic resided, that that the wasteland, the desert, was where the demons dwelled. With the haunt, the wilderness haunts. Um, they, it was, that was the source of power, the sea and the desert. Those were kind of the two places that were realms of evil, chaos, the demonic, death. So pro- commentators that see Bellum as the bad guy say he turns one final attempt to enlist the forces of evil. You can decide on your own. I think the former's probably more likely in this incident, but again, Bellum's a mysterious figure. He's not 100% good but he's not 100% bad. He talks to the actual God of Israel, but he also employs divination and other things at times. So he's one of those characters that takes your theology and just rattles it a little bit because God is speaking through him and God is going to pronounce the greatest prophetic prophetic, prophetic blessing on Israel in all of the, the Torah is going to come through the mouth of this dubious prophet at best. So he says... Verse uh, 2, When Bilaam looked out and saw Israel encamped tribe by tribe, the Spirit of God came upon him. The Ruach Elohim, this was the same thing that was hovering over the waters at the beginning of creation. The Spirit of God comes on him and he utters this oracle. Now, he, he sees them camped tribe by tribe. He's going to give the oracle, again, we've talked about Hebrew poetry, tripartite or bipartite, two lines that, uh, of, that interpret one another or three lines that interpret one another. The cool thing about this is there's 12 of them. There's 12 of these poetic stanzas in this section as he's looking at the 12 tribes of Israel camped. But he goes on to say, the oracle of Bilam, son of Beor, The declaration of the strong man whose eyes are unveiled. NIV says the oracle of one whose eyes see clearly, but it it uses that phrase, the strong man, Gabor, the mighty man. The oracle of one who hears the words of God, who sees a vision from the Almighty, who falls prostrate and whose eyes are opened. The irony here remember the donkey incident? His eyes were not opened. His donkey was the one who saw God. He was blinded. Through this encounter, he's become the donkey. He's become the talking jackass, pun intended. He has become the one who is speaking whose mouth God now opens. So Bilaam becomes his donkey, so to speak. He says, verse 5, How beautiful are your tents, O Jacob! Your dwelling places, O Israel! Like valleys they spread out, like gardens beside a river, like aloes planted by Yahweh, like cedars beside the waters. Water will flow from their buckets and their seed will have abundant water. Now what's the irony? Where are they? They're in the desert. He's seeing them in the desert, but speaking the reality that's going to happen using the imagery of lush garden vegetation. He's seeing. This is the thing, and we talk about this a lot in Revelation, because that's the whole theme of the book, is through the eyes of heaven, the world and its appearances and how things seem get turned upside down. And so what looks like a group of ex-slaves camped around this weird structure in the middle of a desert, through the eyes of God, valleys, gardens, flowing waters, streams... This is how God's prophecy, in this case, is working, speaking it over Israel. He says, verse 8, "...their king will be greater than Agag. Their kingdom will be exalted." All right, who's Agag, or Agag if you're Southern? Who's Agag? Well, this is later, David, or Saul, will fight against the Amalekites, and their king, this is 1 Samuel 15, their king, King Agag, will be killed. So some say, well, this is a future prophecy that this king will be killed. But he's an obscure king, and at this point, that wouldn't have made much sense to Israel. Others, critical scholars, say, oh, Agag is from later, from the time of David. That means that the Torah must have been written after the time of David. And this is just a retroactive description. Well, the problem with that is it ignores the entire point of this whole section, which is it's prophetic. God is speaking before it happens. So beware of critical scholars who say well we must date this by this time because it mentions this person. Well if it mentions him beforehand that's kind of the whole point of prophecy. But rather than go to either of those extremes it's much more likely Agag was the title of the Amalekite kings. Like Pharaoh is the title of the Egyptian kings. So it's not like there's a guy named Agag, but rather a dynastic family or a clan ruler. The Amalekites ruler. Um, and the king of Israel will be greater than them. Israel's king right now is God. Israel won't have a king until far into the future. So um, Bilaam is looking far into the future to see these things. And this happens, actually, this is fulfilled during the reign of King Saul and King David when the Amalekites are defeated and their kingdom is greater than them. But he goes on, verse 8, says, God brought them out of Egypt. They have the strength of a wild ox. They devour hostile nations and break their bones in pieces. With their arrows they pierce them. Like a lion they crouch and lie down. Like a lioness, who dares rouse them? So this is now using those two. Remember the two images of strength in the ancient Near East. Domesticated strength was the ox, fierce predatory strength was the lion, or sometimes the bear. This is now being given. So they've been described in terms of lush garden vegetation and now in their military prowess because why did God bring Israel out of Egypt? To bring them into Canaan. Why did He want to bring them into Canaan? Because they were going to be the judgment on the ten Canaanite peoples who God was sending them to judge. They were going to be the flood this time. God said, I'm not going to flood the world anymore in judgment of the wicked. Now Israel is going to be his judgment. But there are a group of people enslaved for 400 years. How are they going to overcome anybody? How are they going to battle? Because as God is their king dwelling in their midst, he will give them the victory against overwhelming odds. And that's the whole point. He does not want to raise up a mighty army. He's going to use these people as his mighty army. And they're going to go and they're going to be a mighty army even though they are just collectively a nation of slaves. So the verse 12, the last one, may those who bless you be blessed and those who curse you be cursed. This is actually participle in the Hebrew. It just says the ones blessing you are blessed, the ones cursing you are cursed. So this harkens back to the promise to who? Abraham. It's all coming full circle. The promise that started in Genesis 12 is on the cusp of being realized in the promised land. You can't read any of the conquest without getting your finger too far away from the page where God makes the first promise to Abraham. Genesis 12, Genesis 15, and through the rest of those. It's all one story. We cannot dissect it and cut it up into separate pieces. So, then verse 10. Then Balak's anger burned against Bilaam. He struck his hands together. Some say he clapped his hands. Um, This is an ancient Near East sign of mocking, disgust or derision you can see it in lamentations chapter 2 verse 15 those who want to pass by and mock they clap their hands at us so it's not an applause thank you Billam, you've prophesied my downfall no but it's like you know like a it's an angry gesture so he clapped his hands together Uh, i think some new translations say he he banged his fists together something like that which is a good translation and he said to him i summoned you to curse my enemies but you bless them these three times now leave at once. Go home. I said I would reward you handsomely, but Yahweh has kept you from being rewarded. Bilam answered Balak, Did I not tell the messengers you sent me? Even if Balak gave me his palace filled with silver and gold, I could not do anything of my own accord, good or bad, to go beyond the command of Yahweh. And I must say only what the Lord says. In other words, didn't I tell you this? From the get-go, I've told you this. But each time, Billam didn't believe him. Billam probably thought, just like other ancient Near East cu- cultures, oh, this is part of the bargaining process, right? Curse, curse my enemies. Well, I'm going to bless them. Okay, all right. Come here. Now will you curse them? No, I'm going to bless them. Okay, 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 for real. Now will you curse? And it's like he's saying, no, I'm going to bless him. This is when I was in Israel in 2014. I was in the Old City and looking for something for my nephews. And they had a little wooden carved chess set. And my nephew was in the chess. And I was like, this would be cool to give him. So the guy was telling me, and I'm just by myself, American kid with a backpack, and the guy's like, I was like, how much for this? He's like, I'll give you a good price. I'll give you a good price. You know, what else do you want? So he wanted me to like shop around a little bit and see. So I pulled stuff together, and then he was like, okay, you know, 30 shekels or whatever. I don't even remember what it was, but the price in American dollars would have just been ridiculous. And, uh, and I said, no, nah, it's too much. And he was like, ah, ah, ah kids to feed, and family, and this and that, you know, trying to shame me so that I would give, and I was like, no, too much, and so uh, he was like, okay, 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 okay." you know, 25 shekels, or whatever it was, and I told him how much I had, I was like, I have this much money, I'll buy something for this much money, no, 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 no." and you know, so I go to walk away, okay, okay, come back, and then he says another price that's a little bit high, I was like, no, listen, you're not getting this, (laughs) this is a cultural breakdown here, I have this much money, You will not get more than this much money from me. What can you give me for this much money? And uh, so I ended up buying it for, I don't remember, I ended up paying way too much for this little dinky chest. It probably wasn't even made there. It was probably carved in China or something. I don't know. (laughs) But it came from Israel and I gave it to my nephew and all was good. The point is, that is a very culturally conditioned thing in most parts of the world. You bargain, you have this give and take. You don't say your offer up front. You don't say that we do it today when we buy cars, right? If you unless you go to CarMax, which I did because I hate all this, you you, you bargain. Okay, well I'll give it to you. Let me add the special sealant. Okay, well it'll be the, no, 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 I don't want that. So there's this back and forth, back and forth. Billam is like, I've told you from the beginning, God is not a back and forth God in this instance. He will allow himself to be bargained with on some things, as Abraham has known, but this is not a, the case. He said it. It's going to happen. So uh, verse 15, or so verse 14. So uh, Billam says, "Now I'm going back to my people, but come, let me warn you of what this people will do to your people in the days to come." So now he's not only not cursing Israel, now he's going to actually curse the one who was brought in to curse Israel. Why? Those who curse you, I will curse. He's talking to the seed of Abraham and, and saying, this is you know, so, so Balak has tried to curse the seed of Abraham, not the descendants of Abraham, the seed of Abraham, the covenant people of Abraham. Very important, especially in the New Testament. But he says, those who curse you, I will curse. So now Balak's about to get it. Verse 15, then he uttered this oracle. The oracle of Balaam, son of Beor. The oracle of one whose eyes see clearly. The oracle of one who hears the words of God. Who has knowledge from the Most High. Who sees a vision from the Almighty. And who falls prostrate. Whose eyes are opened. This is a beautiful summary of what the prophetic ministry should be. See clearly. Hear the Word of God. Has knowledge of the Most High and sees a vision. And then the last part, falls prostrate. Because knowledge, words, insight are nothing without humbling yourself before God and falling down before Him and serving Him. There's a lot of people that like to claim to be prophetic. And they think that they're vindicated by the wisdom of their words. Some even think that if their words come true, that's vindication. No. Balaam's words come true. But we're going to see in just a few chapters what his fate is. Don't ever, ever, ever confuse prophetic skill with a stamp of approval from God. That's very dangerous. You see it in mega churches, and you see it even in churches that don't believe in prophecy as an ongoing gift. They do it just with the preacher. Who are you to speak against him? He's a man of God. Well, yeah, but he's sleeping with four women in the congregation. Who are you to judge him? He's our leader. God's appointed him over us. Well, his life is a cesspool. Yeah, you it doesn't the gifts, the ability to speak, to inspire, all of that, the people that just hold that up and think that it eliminates somebody from criticism, that's called folk theology. That's theology that just gets passed on from person to person. Just, oh, well, we don't criticize that. We don't criticize her. She's gifted. We don't criticize him. He's a godly man. Only God can judge. We don't need to... No, 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 no. God gives us the ability to discern. Now, we've got to be aware of the other extreme, the hyper-discernment people, the ones whose entire theology consists of finding faults in other theology. You you all know the type. Go on the Internet for five minutes. You'll know the type. Those we want to avoid as well because that's equally toxic. Again, truth is in the middle. We want to weigh what's said. And in this case, Bilaam is speaking truth, what's actually going to come to pass. He says, and we're going to just touch on this and next week we'll wrap up this chapter. He says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. He will crush the foreheads of Moab, the skulls of all the sons of Sheth. Edom will be conquered. Sayer, his enemy, will be conquered, but Israel will grow strong. A ruler will come out of Jacob and destroy the survivors of the city. Or, and that word city is also, again, means like garrison or military center, not like city like we think of, but center of power, so to speak. So right here, this, has been a, this is a vivid prediction of the downfall of two peoples, Edom and Moab and using that parallelism it, it it extends it to some others you know but but moabites balak is the moabite king who's been brought brought this prophet in to curse you know edom the elders of the edomites have come with him these are the two groups that are trying to snuff israel out and so Balaam is giving them this prophecy hey i see it. it's not now it's coming uh, uh, one someone's going to arise from this group a star will rise. Now, remember when Joseph, way back, think to those of you that were here for Genesis. Remember when Joseph had his dream? that his, He said, I saw the stars, the sun and the moon all bowing down to me. And in the dream, the stars represented his brothers. The tribes of Israel were represented as stars. And Balaam is carrying that on. One of, one of these stars, I see a star will arise out of Jacob. Out of those sons, a star will arise. One of the tribes, that's where the ruler will come from a scepter will rise out of Israel. A scepter is the the symbol of kingliness, authority. So all of these hints, all of these images are are floating around in the prophetic ether whenever Israel is being given words of God for their destiny. Um, So again, Genesis 37, if you want to see God's... uh, Jacob's brothers are referred to as stars. Um, In Revelation 22, again, back to Revelation. In Revelation 22, Jesus is described as the morning star, right? And, and that's even a play on Isaiah 14 where another king is called the morning star. That got translated, by the way, in Latin wrongly using the term Lucifer, light bearer, but it was the term morning star. So Lucifer is not anybody's name. I mean, after, before the Middle Ages. Just, just tuck that away. That's a side note, random. But uh, just let that pique your interest if you want to know more about that. But the point is, he is seeing a star, a a figure, a ruler will rise out of Jacob. He'll he'll have power to, to, and that phrase, to crush the heads of. That harkens back to what? The beginning of Genesis. When God gave the curse and He said to the woman, your offspring and the offspring of the serpent, he will strike your heel, but you you'll strike his heel but he will crush your head that means that's a symbol of ultimate defeat of ultimate you can cut somebody's arm off and they can still keep fighting you you can lop a leg off and they can still keep coming at you if you crush somebody's head they are dead there are no head transplants all right crushed head is fatal now this prophecy and we'll talk about this a little more next week because we're running out of time, but this prophecy is seen, its immediate context fulfilled in King David. David comes out of Bethlehem. David comes out of the tribe of Judah. David rises to the throne. David does defeat the Moabites and the Edomites. 2 Samuel chapter 8. David fulfills this. But David's reign is not worldwide or universal as this and other Messianic prophecies in the Old Testament tend to be. So even after David, God says, it's almost like God says David was the prototype. David was the Messiah 1.0. But David was just the precursor to the ultimate Messiah. the ultimate. So when Jesus is doing miracles, when Jesus is, 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 is gathering popularity, what do they refer to him as? Son of David. When Jesus encounters the blind or the lame, the two types of people that David excluded from being able to enter into Jerusalem when he took the city, when the blind and the lame come to Jesus, what do they call him? Son of David. So Jesus is the greater David, the Messiah, capital M, who is going to come This is the beginning of that promise. It's it's tailing right along with the promise all the way back in Genesis 3 of the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. That was the first prediction of the Messiah. Then it goes along. Your seed. In your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That was the next step in the process. Then it comes along now to out of, of the seed of Israel, out of them one will arise from one tribe. So you're starting to see this promise through the Old Testament being narrowed in. It's like a it's like a lens or a prism. It gathers the Old Testament, gathers all these strands of prophecy that are being given, and they're being gathered. They're all converging until you get to New Testament. And then they converge on Jesus. And they converge on this three-year ministry of him as Messiah. And then they really converge right down to the pinhole point of the crucifixion and resurrection and then it expands outward. The light is is focused and then shined outwards to all the ends of the earth and looking back they see, oh, and it all makes sense now. He's the focus of everything. And so that's how the New Testament authors then go back and reread the Old Testament and they see these things. Doesn't mean that this didn't talk about David at first. And you don't go like, oh, there's a prophecy of Jesus, and a Jewish person that doesn't believe in Jesus goes, no, it's a prophecy of David. And then no, it's Jesus. No, it's David. No, it's both. Because Jesus is the son of David. Both contexts are true. But we're out of time. So we're gonna pick this up next week. We're gonna look at this final Billam section, and then we're gonna get back to what we've been missing for five or six, four or five weeks. Now, what's Israel doing during all this? Where is Israel? So we got to go now though. Have a great week, everyone. And we'll see you next time.